It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both this show and the BZE Community Show are also available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Kay Wenigal and I'm joined today by my co-host, Natalie Bucknell. Hello, Kay. Hello, listeners. Good to have you back, Nat, and hope you're feeling better. Yes, I'm on top of the world. (laughs) Great. In terms of climate change action, we don't often look to Queensland for inspiration as a force for change or a leader in climate policy, especially given their recent support for both the coal and gas works in the Galilee Basin. Today, though, we're talking to a Queensland resident who's spent time as a lawyer politician and business leader implementing positive climate change policies and action. Now in the next phase of his career as an academic, Rod Welford is an adjunct professor in the Department of Business Strategy and Innovation at Griffith Business School. He is a man of action with amazing talent who has had an incredible career with many and varied roles. Hi Rod, thanks for joining us. Hello Kay, great to be talking with you. Rod, we don't usually look amongst our ranks of corporate and commercial litigation lawyers for up-and-coming thought leaders and entrepreneurs in energy and sustainability. So what was was energy and sustainability always an area of interest to you? Yes, I guess it's uh, a surprisingly interesting uh, life path. It's true that while I was a young lawyer, I had a bit of a passion for solar energy, although the solar energy systems were not very well developed at that time and very few in number and costly. So are we uh, talking I about the 90s or 80s? solar design of housing. Oh, okay. And that was, was that in the 80s or 90s? Uh, yes, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I built a passive solar design house on the north side of Brisbane at that time. Oh, wow. Gee, so you, you do have a long-standing history of, of thinking about these issues. So um, what, when did you first act on this professionally? Well, I guess in terms of the energy uh, area, it wasn't really until after I got into Parliament. And when I got into the Queensland Parliament, it was the Goth era. There were a few other lawyers around. I was on the back bench, and um, there was plenty of people who wanted to be in the legal area. So I thought about what I was interested in, and obviously environmental issues and energy were an interest. And as I thought more and more about the environment and the importance of environment to human health. It just seemed to me that at the core of the hub of all environmental outcomes that humans have an impact on, energy was the key. If we don't manage energy well in all its forms, materials, water and other forms of energy, then we can't sustain the environment. So was climate change part of the energy discussion at that point? No, it wasn't, in fact. Uh, I don't think it came into, into, onto the radar until the late 80s. And it was starting to be talked about at that time. 
Uh, and of course, in the 90s, governments uh, started looking at policies on that. In fact, I think there was much better work done on some of these policies in the 90s than is being done now. So, did, yeah, that's probably sad but true. So, what was the was the Queensland government thinking about climate change then in those late 80s, early 90s? What sort of discussion was going on then? Yes, well, the Goss government was elected in 89. I was a very young and uh, green, young, green as an inexperienced young politician. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, but by 1994, the Minister for Minerals and Energy, who was from Mount Isa and didn't really <laughs> have much of a grasp of alternative, what he then called alternative energies, uh, came to me and said, look, um, the Premier's told me I have to set up this a group to start doing something about alternative energy because the people want it. He said, it's not really my interest. Can you give me some help? So I uh, went back to him and said, look, if you really want to do it properly, I'll chair it. And this fabulous group with uh, people like Ian Lowe, a academic from uh, James Cook University, electrical engineering, uh, a representative from the then Queensland Electricity Commission. The whole state was run by one commission at the time. And, uh, and so I became head of the Sustainable Energy Advisory Group. And that was really, the, I guess, the start of my direct professional interest in the work of energy. And we did hybrid energy-efficient solar systems out in Bullia, in the Daintree, and on the education facility at North Keppel Island. Mm. These were demonstration projects, which at a time when solar energy was expensive, were able to prove they were cost-effective, providing energy was used efficiently. Wow, even then. So this is probably getting off um, our track a little bit, but, but what happened between then and now that, you know, why, why, wasn't that, why wasn't there a nice continuum of building on that? Well, I think there has been in a way. I mean, what's changed is that renewable energy systems have come down massively in cost. And that's really facilitated, together with state government incentive programs around the country, a huge uptake in solar around Australia. There are more solar systems on households in Australia than there are in the entire US. It's pretty amazing, mm. really, what's happened. And, and most of them have are in voted Queensland. with their pockets, too. A lot of them are in Queensland, too. A large number are. Queensland is, probably has um, the largest share at the moment, I think. But back in the 90s, it, it wasn't that way. So those um, plants that you were talking about, was it mainly Queensland where that was happening or were other states doing similar things? Well, I started, uh, I became Environment Minister uh, a few years later. So uh, the Goss government lost office in 96, early 96. Uh, but then in the 1998 election, was back in office with Peter Beattie as Premier. Mm. And then I became Environment Minister. And that's when I had the opportunity to really drive some change and ramp up our state government's initiatives on the energy front. So in those 20 years in, in the Queensland Parliament, you really have chalked up an impressive list of achievements. What is your secret to getting things done in politics? And could you tell the federal government? <laughs> well, I've been reflecting on this lately, actually. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I grew up through my teenage and studying years at university, through the end of the Whitlam era, then after that the, the Hawke years, the Hawke-Keating years. And I guess I came from a political pedigree that saw the role of government and the role of politicians to lead 
with change and innovation that made for a better society. And my sense is that some of that momentum has been lost in the political argy-bargy of today. It's much more transactional. It's much more managerial. It's, it's less policy and vision focused. And so you don't see the grand plans for rolling out programs, new programs, like we had when I was running the show, in my portfolios at least. So you're saying you, this, the secret to your success was having some vision. Do you think there's just a lack of vision now or that vis- any sort of vision is hobbled by the way that politics is carried out? Well, I think you've got to come to the role, whatever the role is, from Prime Minister down with a plan. If you don't have a plan, then, you know, it's, uh, as they say, if you don't know where you want to get to, any road will take you there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and with me, I had, I came to my first portfolio very highly prepared of, after two years of intensive policy work development. I had about seven or eight fully drafted policies, each of them are probably 10 to 15 pages long, and over 200 specific policy initiatives that I came into government with a clear agenda to implement. So the agenda was very clear, uh, and all I had to do was work with my departments to implement them one at a time and roll them out as quickly as we could. Mm. I think times have changed a little bit as the the last election has shown. You can have a plan, but if the people don't like it, it doesn't help. Or, or even if it, if the storytelling around the plan isn't isn't resonating, then it's not going to work. Well, I think the difference is these days what is taken to elections, though, is not really a plan. It's not a coherent policy framework that stitches everything together. What it is is a grab bag of promises, and they're all designed to just garner votes of various interest groups without having a coherent, holistic plan around how you're going to roll out a program. That, that's actually a very good point. Now, getting back to your impressive list of achievements, and you have mentioned a couple of policies and programs you implemented, were there any others that are large in your mind? Well, the envi- environment portfolio, were, portfolio was my first one, and I guess that was the one in which I was most vigorous in, <laughs> in driving change. In that portfolio, I had a particular interest in resource efficiency, energy and water efficiency. And so, obviously, energy efficiency programs were very important. The industry programs we set up, I set up a new Queensland EPA, the first EPA in Australia, if not the world, that had a specific focus on sustainable industries. And so we worked a lot with industry across Queensland, uh, mining, uh, industrial operations in Gladstone and similar areas and down in southeast Queensland. And was industry receptive to those initiatives? Well, it was the early days of education of industry, I guess. Uh, Industry were receptive. Uh, It was the time when energy prices were starting to creep up. Of course, they've trebled since then, uh, and there's a much higher imperative for business to focus on using energy efficiency now. But it was an education process to make industry aware that they could be more profitable and more environmentally sustainable by using resources more efficiently. So that was a big program in the Sustainable Industries Division of the EPA, which I established. And then I established the first large-scale water efficiency program in Australia. Uh, I diverted money from building dams to saving water, which is in effect doing the same thing (laughs) by creating a a virtual storage in saved water. It's it's not as visible though, Rod. No, it's not. Um, (laughs) 
most people, politicians and engineers, prefer, prefer monuments to their uh, absolutely to their existence. But for me, it was about effective economic outcome. And uh, I ran into a fellow who was working with the Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association some 10 years after we implemented that program. And I was not Environment Minister anymore. And he came to me and said to me, you know, you are well ahead of your time. We're doing that in a lot of places now and we wouldn't have done it or started it if it wasn't for your initiatives. Mm. No, that's, that's wonderful to hear, isn't it? Rod, um, you mentioned before about the state-owned power generation company and that's Stanwell, I understand. Is that right? Well, Stanwell is one of the generators. There yeah. are a number of generation companies now. Is that the largest? Was that the largest one? It was the largest one, yes. So you were uh, actually was, on the board of I was of on that. the board, yes. I was on the board of Stanwell for a short while. Uh, oh, that's good. Well, that, that answers part of my question because um, it actually has about 50% of its profits coming from sources other than electricity sales and they include coal exports and new coal supply. So were you trying to be an agent for good from within? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that uh, proportion of income has changed over the years. Um, I think they these originally are owned, figures. They originally owned the coal mines, of course, to provide a energy source for their own power stations. But as things developed, and of course the demand for energy and competition for the supply of energy increased, they had a surplus of coal available in the coal mine, so they appointed a contracting manager to run the mine and sell the coal. But while I was there, I did try to talk about the opportunity for a large organisation, a large state-owned company like Stanwell, to diversify its role. I wasn't really there long enough to make a difference because the core of the business was around generating power from coal energy at the time. They did have some wind farms during a short period back in the 90s, but in fact, they just before I got there, they disposed of them and decided that their competitive niche was coal. But my interest was in talking to them, given that they were a power generation company and supplying to the retailers of Queensland, to look at the opportunity to work directly with some of the large energy users around demand response or energy saving so that they could arbitrage a pool of savings as well as a pool of generated energy. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Rod Wilford from the Department of Business Strategy and Innovation at Griffith Business School. Now, Rod, moving through your CV, after law and politics, you moved into a consulting role and worked with Insight. Can you tell us what Insight does and what your role is or was within the organisation? Well, again, it's an interesting history. My business partner in Insight Energy Solutions and myself first started the business downstairs in my home on the north side of Brisbane back in 1996. I was in opposition at that time, as you recall, and I thought to myself, well, if we're going to be in opposition for another decade, I'm out of here. So I planned my exit strategy to be involved in environmental planning and energy planning. And we set up a business and our first job was to undertake the energy system design for an off-grid resort on Stradbroke Island off the coast of Brisbane. That resort was being developed by the well-known former Olympic runner, Ron Clark, uh, once he became uh, a prominent businessman and later mayor of the Gold Coast. And Curran Cove Resort was set up to be a training facility for foreign Olympic teams coming to prepare for the Olympics in Sydney in 2000. And it was also a demonstration project of good environmental design in what was 
a forest location on a an un, largely undeveloped island off the coast of Queensland. So that energy system actually won national awards for energy efficiency well um, in 1998. So our business went on from there and I became Environment Minister, of course, in 1998. And of course, you can't be poacher and gamekeeper at the same time. So <laughs> I had to exit the business and leave my colleague to do it on his own for a decade until I finished my work in politics. And then back after 2010, we started talking again. 2012, I went back into the business and became executive chairman of the business to lead it for him because he had the strong technical skills and I was able to lead the team. And we built a business from about five people, well, two of us initially, but then five people working on large energy-intensive industrial processes, up to 55 people by the time I left in 2017. You did some work in South Africa as well, didn't you, where you said you targeted... In fact, most, the... of, our work, most of our work was in South Africa. Well, uh, we came to go there because my colleague said to me, I said to him, what do you want to do? And he said, well, I want to make the biggest difference I can in the way the world uses energy. And I said, well, let, let's do this. The first thing is we stop writing reports. There are plenty of engineering companies that can write reports, and those reports sit on dusty shelves in mining and industrial houses all over the world. You mean environmental audits? Yes, yeah. Well, usually energy audits they are. Energy audits, Specifically yeah. focused on energy and how energy can be saved and costs can be saved. And I said the second thing we should do is only focus on the biggest, ugliest energy guzzlers on the planet. So let's go after them, because if we can show them that they can save energy and the environment at a profit, then it'll be a good demonstration for everyone else. I would have thought you'd be able to find a few in Australia. There were, but not, not with the same intensity. So, for example, the first two jobs we got in South Africa were with Rio Tinto, and the second one was an iron and titanium mine with an annual energy bill of $150 million US. Mm. <laughs> now, our aim was to achieve a 10% saving of that cost every year, and we didn't achieve 10% in the first year, but they're close to it now. So they're still still decreasing, are they? Yes, still achieving significant savings every year. In fact, in the three years from, four years from, uh, no, three years, we started measuring the savings in 2014. By the time I exited the business in 2017, they had saved over $25 million US and massive savings in carbon emissions, of course. Yeah, yeah. So the strategy was to, was to show these companies that they could transform how they operated their business to achieve the same productivity, the same quality of product and meet their market's needs, but do it in a way that saved them money, reduced carbon emissions and made their business more productive and enabled them to keep their employment in difficult times. So that's actually creating a more efficient, energy-efficient business, but did you also change the type of energy systems they used? Well, that was being worked on, yes. Um, there were a number of projects. So the, the approach we took was initially to make the existing business as efficient as possible and then spend capital on new equipment that would provide for alternative energy sources or even more efficiency from more efficient uh, industrial processes and motors and so forth, pumps and all that sort of thing. So what were the key changes that they were making to achieve this? Well, most of it, interestingly, most of it turned out to be process improvement. So if you imagine the massive organisation involved in a mining and smelting operation, you have the work at the mine, you have pumps delivering uh, the slurry material from the mine uh, to the smelter. 
you have uh, a storage area at the smelter, then the smelter, and then the, after the smelter, the products plant, and then, of course, the rail to the port. And essentially, getting everyone working together was 60% of the challenge. Once you had that happening and you had the logistical process of moving those materials, because that's where all the energy was going, moving and changing the form of those materials, everything done in a mine is driven by energy. So if you use energy as the, as the window or the proxy for how efficient the operation is and measure energy with much higher definition than they ever had before, you can transform how they operate. BCD is very strong on electrifying industry, and mining obviously is one of those things. Did you look at that? Uh, yes, we did. We did. For example, one of the things that happens in mines is that much of the underground mining is done with compressed air and pneumatic drills. But electric drills are much more efficient because they're, um, they're not losing energy on the way through of converting it you know, into compressed air and then back into, into the power of the drills. So there was a time where sometimes the costs between electricity and gas were needed to be compared because gas was a direct fuel that you could apply in certain industrial processes that was more efficient or more cost-effective. What's happened since, of course, is that energy technologies have changed so dramatically that electricity is now by far the most effective way to provide energy, most energy services. Here, here. Getting on to the next part, and following on from the opportunities in business, you're now with the Griffith Business School, and it's a leading um, national business school focusing on the creation of future leaders in sustainable and responsible businesses, and you're lecturing in that. Can you tell us what that involves and what you're actually promoting in business and the changes that they should undertake? Coming out of my work with those big multinational corporates, it was clear to me that if we're going to actually achieve the sustainability outcomes for the world that need to be achieved, we can't just rely on governments. And ordinary citizens in their daily lives have a big difference cumulatively, but it still won't be achieved without business getting on board. So transforming the business landscape of the world whereby businesses can see that there is business value that can be created out of operating businesses more sustainably seems to me to be a key goal. And so now I'm working with the Griffith Business School in Queensland to work, teach and uh, train business leaders, mostly in the master's programs, on how they can take a conventional business and transform it into a sustainable business. And this is more than just uh, environmental outcomes. It's all the 17 sustainable development goals of the UN so that business leaders recognise that their stakeholders extend well beyond just their shareholders. And, of course, we're seeing some of this ricochet around the integrity testing of Australian companies at the moment with the Banking Royal Commission and other Royal Commissions. Mm -hmm. So for any business to be sustainable and profitable. They need to recognise that there are a whole lot of stakeholders they need to serve. And many of those stakeholders have a strong interest in environmental issues. But there are other social and economic values that are important to stakeholders, not just shareholders and customers, but the communities where the companies work, the broader social environment in which they operate. 
and a social licence is effectively needed from the community for companies to be successful. So essentially that's, um, a, there is a global shift, isn't there, from the profit-first approach to, the, as you say, the stakeholder value creation? There is, and increasingly companies are recognising uh, that if their reputation is damaged by the way they treat their employees, by the way they treat the sources of supply of their products, uh, using slave labour, for example, in other countries, or the way they manage resources and treat the environment in which they operate. These are all things that damage the business reputation and risk their profitability and attraction of customers. Well, on, on that note, I think we've just about run out of time. Rod, where can people find out more about this? Well, the Australian Centre for Sustainable Enterprise at Griffith University has a website where you can start uh, looking at these sorts of things. But if you Google sustainable business, there's a lot of information online these days about what different businesses are doing to improve their environmental performance and improve their social performance in the community at a profit. Uh, whilst increasing their profits. Absolutely. That's fantastic news, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, many businesses used to think that doing anything environmental was simply a cost of the business. Yes. Uh, a cost of compliance, but no value to the business's financial performance. Increasingly, businesses are realising that by invo being involved in good environmental practice, embedding good environmental practice in the strategy of their business, their business can, can, can become more resilient, more attractive to customers and more profitable. Great. Thanks very much for your time today, Rod. Thank you very much, Kay. We've been speaking to Rod Welford from the Department of Business Strategy and Innovation at the Griffith Business School. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.